You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. This morning our sermon text is from Acts 5, 17 to the end of the chapter. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force, because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you have murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witness of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamal, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you are about to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilee rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were come worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and, various, and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is God's word. Thank you, Zelia. We're reading for us this morning. Uh, sorry, I beat you to the punch and jumped up. Um, I looked around for a second and nobody was jumping up, and so I, 
Here, I'll read it. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Zach. Um, I'm actually one of the pastors at Mago Day Church, just up the road uh, in North Raleigh. I know some of you very well. I know some of you a little bit, and I've just met a few of you today. Uh, but it is a deep privilege to be able to be with you um, and to be able to worship with you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident most of you know that King's Cross, uh, many of you actually came from Imago Day and uh, to start this church uh, a little over a year ago now. And uh, it has been a joy to get to watch the Lord at work in and through you guys in this part of the city and uh, to, see, uh, to see the way that the Lord is moving among you and continuing to shape and mold his church in this part of the city. So thank you, Chad, Aaron, for allowing me to be here today uh, to be able to open the Bible with you guys. Uh, my wife told me to greet you. Uh, she's at home. She's sick with, or she has one of our, one of our kids is sick, uh, had a fever the last two days, and so she wasn't able to be here, uh, but really wished that she could be here. So. Um, with that said, um, it is just a wonderful thing that you guys are going through the book of Acts. I think that's a, uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful book for a new church to be working through. And, um, and I'm excited to be able to walk through this particular passage in chapter five. And it's interesting because, uh, this is the second bout of persecution that the church is facing. Uh, this brand new church that has just come from Pentecost. Um, and they've just gathered together uh, in Jerusalem. They've, they've got now 3,000, now 5,000 people. They're people that are coming to faith day after day. And, uh, and as that has taken place, it's getting the attention of the people around them. And just a chapter ago, you looked at the first time that this happened, whenever Peter and John were teaching and healing in the name of Jesus, and the religious elite uh, became annoyed and arrested them. And they warned them not to teach in this name and then released them. And when they released, they were released, they went back to the brothers and sisters and they prayed. You guys remember that passage? They prayed and they asked the Lord to give them boldness to continue speaking the word of God and that God would, would stretch out his hand and continue to heal and perform signs and wonders to validate the word as it was going forth. And, um, and so then you... You guys have been in this other passage where it kind of begins to describe the nature of the church. And you had this wonderful, beautiful passage where Barnabas is described and that everyone had, had this, uh, this life in common with one another. All of the needs of the church were being met. And then you see this very actually terrifying passage in some ways uh, where there, there were individuals who held back truth in the life of the body and, uh, and they were disciplined, but disciplined by the Holy Spirit and actually dropped dead because they were lying about what they said they were doing. And so you see the, the, the Christ is purifying his church as well. Um, and then you continue to see towards the, the, uh, uh, the middle of chapter 5, you see that many signs and wonders were being done regularly by the apostles, and the people were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and it says in verse 14, more than ever believers were being added to the Lord, and there's just this, this dynamic, the church is growing more than ever, believers are being added day by day to the number there in Jerusalem, the very first church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that brings us to our text, and there's a couple of things that we can expect to see. One is that we're going to see the same activity of the apostles 
they're still preaching Christ and healing people, and it's still creating the same kinds of problems, uh, the same kind of responses. We see the same antagonist. Uh, so in every story, you know, there's the good guys and the bad guys. We've got the bad guys. They're the same, they're the same bad guys that we've been seeing, <laughs> the same bad guys that we've been seeing thus far in this narrative. The high priest and the religious elite. The only difference is that they've developed in their motive. They've gone from annoyance about these people who are preaching the gospel of Christ and healing in his name to now there's jealousy that's involved. And so we'll, we'll tease that out a little bit. Then you see the same opposition. It's just an escalated persecution. So uh, in the first, uh, uh, the first moment of persecution, we actually saw just Peter and John who were arrested and they were just warned or threatened this time, we're going to see that it's actually all of the apostles that are arrested, and they're imprisoned, not just taken before the trial, and they're actually beaten by the end of it, um, not just warned and threatened. And so we see that the persecution is actually escalated as well. And then, uh, but it's interesting, there's a similar result, but it's slightly different. Uh, after the second bout of persecution, we see a different kind of response. It moves from prayer for boldness to praise that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. And, um, and so, uh, now what's really challenging, I think, for a passage like this, and sometimes a lot of passages in the book of Acts, is how in the world are we supposed to relate to this in our current context? Um, what does it look like for us right here in Raleigh, in this particular neighborhood, or in the neighborhoods in which we're living, um, because we're not facing uh, a group of religious leaders who are in cahoots with the government, who are chasing us down uh, and throwing us in prison and beating us for proclaiming the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we're, not, we're not in the exact same shoes that the apostles were, uh, that this early church was. Now, it doesn't mean that there are not Christians, our brothers and sisters around the world, who are in these kinds of shoes. Um, but for us, in our context, it's not necessarily the case. I think about um, the kinds of sufferings that are being experienced by our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Um, I think about uh, there, was a, there was a brother who was imprisoned in Mumbai, and uh, he was imprisoned in Mumbai because he was proclaiming the gospel to too many Muslims, and too many Muslims were choosing to follow Jesus and being baptized. And so uh, he got in trouble with the government uh, because of this. He was, his name was submitted, and the, the, the officers came, put him in prison. And he was in prison for three years. And during that time, uh, because of his imprisonment, the, the new believers who had just chosen to follow Jesus from the Muslim faith were emboldened because of his imprisonment to preach the gospel that much more. And so by the time that he got out, the gospel had spread even more, and there were more churches that had been planted because of his imprisonment. Uh, I think about um, a young lady that came to faith in the Middle East, an uh, Arab lady. Uh, she came to faith through the witness of a foreign missionary, and uh, after she became a believer, uh, she, um, she told her husband that she had chosen to follow Jesus. It was about three or four months after she became a believer that she told her husband. And uh, her husband, upon hearing this, um, uh, went and told her, her mother, or his mother-in-law, um, and her, she happened to work in an Islamic um, um, school, 
and she just was irate and began to put all kinds of pressure, had the whole family begin to put all kinds of pressure on this lady to recant and return to Islam. And um, uh, they isolated her, kept her you know, stuck in her home, would not allow her to even go out for groceries. Um, and uh, for a long time, probably about, uh, probably about two to three months, um, none, none of the church there was able to have any kind of contact with her. So we didn't know if she was alive or she was dead. We're just praying for her, praying that the Lord would sustain her faith, that he would carry her forward. And um, uh, as, uh, as the Lord does, uh, he did so. And um, uh, uh, she was able to be um, uh, able to get out of the house and go to the grocery store. And she prayed that morning before she left that the, that God would allow her to run into one of the, the one of the believers from the church. The church is about the size of like 30 people. It's about the number of people in this room right now. Uh, in a city of about 1.5 million, and so and really they're the only. Christians, they're the only church really in this city, and um, lo and behold, she ran into one of the ladies in the life of the church at the grocery store, the one time that she's able to leave, receives this encouragement. It wasn't but a couple of of weeks later that her husband decided to start coming and take her with him um, to to the gatherings of the church, and uh, it wasn't but another six to eight months later that he actually chose to follow Jesus himself. And, um, and so all the while she's isolated. She would be reading the Bible and he would early on, her husband would read the Quran loudly so that she, she, he would not hear what she was saying. But then the longer she kept reading the Bible, reading the Bible in her isolation there in the home. And, uh, and finally he just got tired of reading the Quran over top of her reading the Bible and then he, he started listening, and the Lord started using his word to soften his heart and to draw him to himself. I think about where I grew up in West Africa. Uh, my parents were serving among a animistic people group, and um, uh, we had about 17 young men that were gathered up and drinking tea together one evening, and uh, 15 of those men chose to follow Jesus. Uh, all together decided they wanted to follow Jesus and be baptized. Well, whenever they went home that night, the next morning, they went and told the elders of the church of, of, the, of the village, and uh, and they began to put pressure on them, saying, "We won't give you women for wives. We won't we won't give you any. Uh, we won't give you homes. We won't give you land. Uh, you're going to lose everything if you choose to follow Jesus." And every single one of them came back around that very week and recanted their faith. Um, this kind of pressure, this kind of persecution on the church of God is present in the life of believers around the world. What about here in Raleigh? We may not be imprisoned or beaten by religious leaders or by the government for our faith right now, but there is absolutely a ton of negativity in the culture towards Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, that is, towards Christians in general, towards the church, towards, and especially anyone who is in any kind of spiritual authority. Uh, There's absolutely an increased pressure on 
in friendships and in the workplace and in the classroom to accept beliefs and lifestyles that are inconsistent with the scriptures, inconsistent with the gospel. There's even to call someone to repentance and faith right now could be considered spiritual abuse. Uh, to, to impress on someone the doctrine or, the, or the, the, the teaching, the word of God, can be considered spiritual abuse. You know, you think, it's interesting though, like this is not new. This has been going on since Genesis 3. The, the whole of the redemptive narrative, God's enemies have always been seeking to distort and silence his word. That's been, it was always that question, did God really say? It's always been to distort or silence what he has said. And so it's really, really important, I think, for us as Christians in an increasingly post and even anti-Christian world and environment, I think this is actually a very helpful text for us today uh, to begin to consider, even if we can't identify with every, every single element of it. So with that said, uh, I think the text is mainly pointing to one truth, and so I want to give that to you. So if you're looking for the main point, uh, this is it. It is simply to obey God over men by preaching Christ and suffering joyfully for the sake of his name. Obey God over men by preaching Christ and suffering joyfully for the sake of his name. We're going to look at this in three parts. Uh, we'll look at it first in seeing how the apostles were imprisoned for preaching Christ. Then we're going to look at how the apostles were opposed for obeying Christ. And then we'll look at how the apostles were overjoyed to suffer for Christ. And so, with that said, let's jump in to the first part. Uh, the apostles being imprisoned for preaching Christ. So, look there in verse 12 through 16. I want you to see just the context. We went over this, or you guys went over this last week. Now, many signs and wonders were being regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all, they were all together in Solomon's portico. Uh, so they're there, they're gathering together in a public space, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So there's this, this elevation of the apostles that's taking place there. And... It says that more and more, more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So signs and wonders being done. They're wanting to, uh, you know, anything to be able to, to receive that kind of healing. Maybe that's what we need to start at King's Cross as a shadow ministry. Um, maybe we, we can get that going at some point. Um, uh, the, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the church, I mean, it's just blowing and going. It's, it, is, it is exploding. You know, it went from 3,000 in the first moment to now 5,000 to now it's, it's, it's multitudes of both men and women uh, being added to the number. Um, and so, it, but it's not just that it's growing, it's that there's, there's the, the whole community, even those who are believers and non-believers, they're enamored with the spiritual power of God that they're seeing in the apostles uh, as they're performing these signs and wonders and validating his word. Uh, but the high priest and his associates, they rose up against them 
They rose up against them. We see that starting in verse 17. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with all jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, who are these guys, and why were they against the apostles? Let me, let me tease this out just a little bit. Uh, these were the key leaders from among the Jews, uh, the religious and political rulers, the elders of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. So these are the, uh, the highest, most well-regarded people from the religious elite among the Jews. Everyone looked to them. Everyone, if they said something, you were going to obey what they would say. Um, you were not going to disregard what they would say. Uh, and so... Uh, you can remember, if you think back to the Gospels, uh, Jesus had many dealings with these throughout the Gospels. Um, and uh, if you remember as well, they were divided generally along two theological lines. You, you would have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We actually see both of those in this story. Um, we see that the high priest and the Sadducees, the party of the Sadducees, so he's probably a Sadducee himself. And uh, it's like he, he's got the majority right now among the religious elite. So he's the one that's leading uh, the, the charge in this. Um, the biggest difference was that the, the Pharisees would believe in the supernatural. That would be things like angels, miracles, uh, the resurrection uh, after death, uh, different things like that. Uh, but the Sadducees did not, uh, and that's why they were sad, you see, uh, because they didn't believe in life after death. Uh, uh, there's, uh, sorry, that was a really bad one. Um, if you haven't heard that one, I've, I've told it many times, and I've heard it many times. Um, the high priest uh, would have presided over this group of religious political elite and uh, eventually, um, uh, you know, it, at this point at least, was, was dominated by the Sadducees. Um, uh, the best way to think about them, the, the Sadducees, was these are like theological liberals of their day who were leveraging whatever influence they had over the people to be able to try to placate the Roman government and then still have control over what's going on there among the people. That's probably the best way to think about them at this point, especially in this text. And the text says that they were filled with jealousy. Um, this is definitely an escalation from being having been greatly annoyed, and uh, they were jealous, it seems, uh, because they were losing power and influence over the people. Uh, remember what we just read there at the end of uh, the, from, from the, the passage from last week. Um, it seems as though they've lost a little bit of this influence over the people, especially with the rise of the apostles. Um, and so the people are they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching instead of theirs. The people were going to the apostles for healing and help, not them. More than ever, believers are being added to the Lord. And so uh, it's not that abnormal, I think, uh, of a response for the religious elite. Uh, this is the way that they responded to Jesus, and it's what ended in his own crucifixion, was them trying to, trying to respond in this very way to him. He was so popular, they didn't want that. They wanted to be the ones that were sought after. Uh, a couple chapters later, we see Stephen ends up being stoned because he places the religious elite in the place of uh, Joseph's brothers. If you remember that story in the Old Testament, where Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and his colored coat and the love that he had from his father, and so they ended up uh, they ended up feigning his death and, uh, and, and selling him into slavery because they were jealous. He puts the religious elite in that category, the brothers of Joseph. 
and uh, he ends up getting stoned for it just a few chapters later in the book of Acts. I think, too, the religious leaders in the synagogues, whenever you look at Paul's ministry, they were filled with this same kind of jealousy. As soon as Paul and his companions would come in and begin preaching the gospel, and people began believing the gospel and coming to them and coming to Christ, they became jealous whenever that was taking place and would try to respond in some kind of either either a defensive way or, or even on the attack. Um, and so um, what do they do with their jealousy? They arrest them and they put them in the public prison. Uh, it's almost like, it, it's interesting that, that Luke records that term public, the public jail. Uh, and I think it's really important for us to see that because it's almost as if they are trying to set them up as an example to the whole church in Jerusalem that's coming, this whole movement that's taking place. They're trying to show, hey, we are the ones that really have power and control here. We're the ones that are really uh, the, the, the people that you need to be looking to for leadership, not these apostles. All we have to do is snap our fingers, and they're in public prison, and you can see them there. It's like open shame. And, uh, but, um, yeah, it's definitely... It's definitely more that they're doing now compared to what they were doing in chapter 4. Uh, it's definitely an increased or an escalated um, kind of kind of persecution. This time it's all the apostles that were in prison publicly, uh, likely to try to just shame them and into publicly, you know, trying to get them to obey even their charge that they had said, don't speak in this name. Um, so we see that there. They're put into public prison. And then uh, let's look. Uh, let's look at uh, what happens once they get into prison. It looks like. Uh, let's start in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, "Go, and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life." And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they put them in prison. But guess what? They actually don't have all the power and the control. God does. And he sends an angel and he breaks them out of prison. And he says, go and go back, not to a private place, don't go to the houses. He says, go back and stand in the temple and keep telling people about this life that you found in me. Um, And so they escape miraculously with an angel of the Lord. Notice that language, an angel of the Lord. So this is someone that's being sent by Christ, taking care of the apostles. Such a, such a wonderful thought there. Isn't that what Jesus told them? He says, Lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Um, he's taking care of them. He said, Go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the ends of the earth, but I'll be with you. Um, the angel of the Lord instructed them to go and to stand in the temple and to, to tell the people all the words of this life. Now, in a few minutes, we'll look a little closer at the gospel, the thing that it was that they were proclaiming, uh, the thing that they were preaching, but I just want you to notice they were instructed to go stand and speak to the people, and at daybreak, they did just that. They obeyed immediately. It's really critical for us to understand that. They had every incentive to, if they were just broken out of prison, they had every incentive to go and hide away somewhere, to go to the mountains, to go and escape, to try to get away. But 
this angel of the Lord instructed them to go to stand in a public space and to speak the gospel. And so they obey him. Look at their obedience in the face of opposition. They have been doing this very thing yesterday, were arrested and put in prison, and now they're going back into the temple and continuing to preach and teach to the people. They obeyed the commission of Christ through the angel of the Lord to go and speak the words of life to the people. What can we learn from this? How, how are we able to do this? Let's think for a moment about what Jesus told them. He said, in John 15, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. So, if you're discouraged in your evangelism, Isaac Adams, I think, is helpful here. He gives us a paradigm for preaching the gospel in the face of opposition and, and preaching the gospel and being rejected by those that we're preaching to. He says, being rejected for sharing the gospel is normal. <laughs> That's your paradigm. It's normal. It's the way that Jesus told us it was going to be. Didn't Jesus tell us as much? He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Instead of making us despair, rejection should make us rejoice. The apostles rejoiced when they got to suffer for the, for the name of Jesus. So here's what normally happens whenever we're rejected, when we're, we're discouraged in evangelism. We're rejected, we forget God's promises, and we despair. We think that we have done something wrong, that we think, we think that we, we, we turn inward and we struggle with doubt and faithlessness, and then we're discouraged from going back and proclaiming the gospel again to someone else for fear of rejection. But what we should be doing is when we're rejected, we remember God's promises. And then we rejoice that we've been counted worthy to come alongside and receive a little bit of dishonor for the sake of the name. The critical difference is whether or not we remember what Jesus said to us. Do we expect it to be any different than what he said it would be? We must expect it to be what he said it was going to be. They hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. When it comes to our evangelism, we must remember the words of Jesus. That seems to be exactly what the apostles did, and I think it's part of the reason why they were able to go right back out to that public place and continue preaching and teaching the gospel. Meanwhile, back at the ranch or back at the Sanhedrin, uh, looks like, uh, you know, we've seen how the apostles were in prison for Christ, but now we're going to look at how they were posed for obeying him. You see that in verse 21, uh, second half of verse 21. It says, now when the high priest came, so this is the next morning at daybreak, they're gone, they're teaching. So the high priest comes and uh, those who were with him and they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent for the pri uh, to the prison to have them brought. But when the, prisoner, when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now the captain of the temple or the chief priest uh, heard this, 
and they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So the high priest, he's pulling together his cronies, and he's getting the gang together. He's expecting to get the apostles right there, and they're going to, you know, give them what's coming to them. And, uh, and then, obviously, they were incredibly surprised. Uh, the, the, the language was perplexed. I forget, what was, what was the, your, your translation? What does your translation say, Azealia? Baffled. Baffled, that's such a good word. Uh, they were perplexed. They were trying to figure out what in the world... We just put these guys in prison last night. Where are they? Somebody from, maybe somebody from the church came and got them out, and now they're in the hills. I think the last thing they would have been expecting is that they had been in the temple teaching. They're not sure what to make of it. They're wondering, you know, where and how these guys might turn up. Uh, maybe some of them broke out of prison, skipped town. Um, I'm sure that teaching the people in the temple was the last thing that they expected. Uh, so, um, but there they were. That's exactly what we see next in verse 25. It says, And someone told and came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain and officers went and brought them, but not by force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Um, they recognize the apostles have some power that is connected to them F- from outside of them. But they're also recognizing that they've got influence with the people, and now there's, they're they're afraid of what may happen uh, if they uh, if they if they do something um, publicly. So then, once they have the apostles before the council, what is it that they say to them? You see that in verse 28, uh, it says, "We strictly charged you. We told you. Don't you remember? We told you." We strictly charge you, which is true. They have been charged not to speak. You see that in verse four or chapter four, verse eighteen, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And obviously, the apostles have not been obeying their warnings. In fact, when they had said that, the apostles had no intention of obeying their warnings. In verse nineteen, you see that whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than or. Uh, to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So they, that was automatically they're going to be their response. They were going to speak about what they had seen and heard, no matter what the these these religious leaders were telling them to do or not to do. And so after they were released the first time, they rejoined the brothers and sisters, prayed, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants that we might be able to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. He said, we charge you not to speak. We, that's what we did. We charged you not to speak, but you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. It's so interesting, the two words filled, same word for they were filled with jealousy. That's what's going on in the heart of the religious elite, the self-righteous religious elite, filled with jealousy whenever they see the gospel going out, people being saved, people being healed, people being blessed by the gospel, filled with jealousy in their hearts, while the city is filled with the teaching of God's word, and people's lives are being changed by it. Such an interesting dichotomy between the irony of it, what the chief priests and the religious elites are filled with, and what they're desiring, versus what God is desiring, and what he's actually doing in filling the city with his good word. The apostles never stopped preaching boldly. 
Jesus as the Christ. And then we hear, so we hear, you know, we charge you not to speak, but you filled the city with this teaching. We kind of hear a little bit of what's going on behind their heart. In verse 28, it says, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, remember, they feared the people. They didn't want to be stoned by them. They were worried about how the people were perceiving them. This is the self-righteous elite. This is the way that they think. They didn't want to be cast as the villain in this story. Of course, they had conveniently forgotten that whenever Pilate told them that Jesus, you know, when he was about to be turned over to be crucified, Pilate had said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people riled up by the religious elite had said, his blood is on us and our children. So conveniently, they had forgotten. That's exactly what they had said. And the apostles are just repeating the historical facts of what took place with the crucifixion. But they don't want the narrative to go quite like that. They don't want to be seen quite like that. So how did the, resp- the apostles respond? Well, we see, I'm going to read this, and I want to, I want to draw out a, 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 uh, how many? Um, I think it's maybe six or so, no, seven elements of the gospel that Peter and the apostles were proclaiming. You see, starting in verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of the fathers of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And we see at least seven elements that are emphasized here in this little snippet of the way in which they were proclaiming the gospel. And I want to I want to just show you a couple of these things. The first element that we see in the gospel that they were proclaiming is that it was God-centered and God-originated. You see the language there four different times God is mentioned that we must obey God rather than men. So it's a Godward orientation. We're trying to please God rather than men. That the God of our fathers raised, God raised Jesus. That God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him in faith. And so we see that. We see that that God-centered and God-originating gospel uh, that's being proclaimed by by the apostles. You also see this little little couple of verses here is just drenched in Trinitarian language. What I mean by Trinitarian is God is Trinity. He's triune. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. We see all three of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity at work here. We see God as the initiator, Jesus as the leader and Savior who's giving repentance and forgiveness of sins, and we see the Holy Spirit who is being given uh, to those who obey him and is a witness of the resurrection of Christ internally to the believer. We also see just the emphasis on the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. We see that he was raised in verse 30 and after having been hung on a tree in verse 30. So his death, his resurrection. But then we also see that he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven right now interceding for those who belong to him. We see as well, um, 
fourthly, we see that this gospel provide, sal- provides salvation for his people. It's giving repentance to his people, forgiveness for their sins. Uh, it's giving Jesus as their leader and savior. Uh, you know, it's interesting that term leader. Uh, what was the term? I forgot what the term was that she used. Somebody have the CSB? The ruler, I think it said. The ruler and savior. Um, and uh, it's an interesting term. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's really helpful. It reminds me a lot of, uh, it's, it's this concept of pioneering or this concept of founding. He's the one that's leading the way into something that we could never actually enter into apart from him. It really reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, looking to Jesus, we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now uh, on the right hand of the throne of God. Like that's, that's our leader. He's the one who has gone that way and has made a way because he went that way. He's made a way for to follow him into the presence of God. Um, uh, when Jesus died, rose, and ascended for the first time, a man entered heaven. We have a man in heaven, a human being in heaven in Christ. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, the fully God-man who has made a way for us to enter there as well. It's good news. Um, You also see in this gospel that it's anchored in history. You see that they reminded them that it was actually the God of their fathers who raised Jesus from the dead, reminding them, hey, he came from a people. That should make us think of all of the passages throughout the whole of the Old Testament and the redemptive plan that goes all the way from Genesis all the way through into the Gospels, we see that, that he's been at work doing this thing. It's anchored in history, the God of our fathers. But it's also a gospel that cultivated obedience. Notice this gospel is bookended by that term, obey. Where he says in uh, verse 30, Uh, or verse 29 he says we must obey God rather than men and then at the end he says we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Um, you know beginning beginning there we must obey God rather than man it's demonstrating that they are no longer seeking to please man but God reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians he says if I were if I were still um, uh, uh, if I if I did not belong to Christ, I would still be trying to please man. But I don't. I belong to Christ, so I don't try to please man anymore. Um, this is a direct contradiction and contrast to what the relig- religious elite are trying to do. They're trying to please man. They're not trying to please God. Um, and then they ended up, uh, they, end, they end this, this section indicating that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God that will witness to the resurrection of Christ within the one who obeys Christ. Wait, the one who obeys Christ. Wait a minute. We get the Spirit when we obey? Is that how that works? Um, that doesn't sound like the gospel of grace that I'm familiar with. So let's let's uh, look at a couple of other passages to try to help us understand this. Titus 3, 5, and 6, I think is really, really helpful. He says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
So it's not on the, be- on the basis of our obedience that we receive the Holy Spirit, but it's actually because of his mercy and his grace that he extends and pours out the Holy Spirit into us. And so, no, it's not that at all. But by grace, through the obedience of faith in the Son, we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how in the world is the Holy Spirit a witness within us? Here, I think Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 13 through 7, I think will be helpful. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Absolutely, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Beyond this, the last thing that we see in this gospel that they're proclaiming is that it focused on Jesus. Jesus was at the center. He's the leader who is vindicated by God and exalted to God's right hand, making a way for us to follow him there. Jesus as Savior to grant repentance and forgiveness for sins to his people. So how did the religious elite like this blatant disobedience, obeying God rather than obeying people, and this gospel of grace. Well, look at it in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Enraged and wanted to kill them. That's how they responded. So now, we've seen how the apostles were imprisoned for preaching Christ. We've seen now how they were opposed for obeying Christ. Now we need to look and see how they were overjoyed to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. So, they were enraged. They were ready to kill the apostles. Fortunately, someone stood up and provided just a little bit of perspective. Look at it there in verse 34 through verse 39. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. Before these days, Thaddeus rode up, rose up and claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him and he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So, in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan is an undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. And we don't know if it was because of the signs, the wonders, the prison break, or just conventional wisdom, but this God-minded Pharisee, uh, Gamaliel, helped the religious elders to come to a healthier perspective by appealing to a couple of things. One was history. Uh, these two revolting leaders, uh, these two guys, they both are attested by Jewish historians. Um, and so we actually know from outside of the Bible that these guys actually existed and that something like what is described here actually happened. Um, so we see that 
the combination of multiple uh, multiple documents that are actually leading us to, to see that and even validating the, the text of Scripture in this way. Um, but these movements, they qu- quickly dissipated after their deaths. Uh, the people that were following them, as soon as they died, uh, they stopped following them. They were scattered. It dispersed. It didn't continue on. In his view, Jesus is like these other men. His followers will soon lose momentum and the threat that they're currently feeling, that the religious elite are currently feeling from the apostles, would come to nothing. His final point is basically, laissez-faire and let God. Let it alone and let God. If this plan is an undertaking of man, it'll fail. If it's of God, then we don't even want to be against it anyway. Laissez-faire and let God. It seems like we might be tempted to think that he's a very pious man and that he's, that he's thinking in a, very, in a very Godward way, and maybe, maybe he was. It's difficult to see in this text. Maybe he was just thinking conventionally. Um, he was just trying to say, hey, look, let's, let's just let him alone. Let's not cause more of a ruckus than we need to. Let's be sensible about these things. Um, regardless of where he was at, what he said is true. What he said is true. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, it is true, but it's not always true. We've got to recognize, like, just because someone is doing good and something that is for God doesn't mean that it's always going to succeed in the way that we think that it's going to. Just like, just because someone does something evil doesn't mean that they're always never going to succeed. And so it's a principle that's, I think, helpful in this particular case, but it's not necessarily a principle that's applicable everywhere, in every case. Um, so just, just recognize that. Regardless, they calm down, they take his advice. You see this in verse 40. It says, And when they had called the apostles, so, so they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. How did the apostles respond? such an interesting response. I don't, it's very surprising, actually. You would not expect this response from them. But it, what they say, what it says here is that then they left the presence of the council. So they've just been beaten. It says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. The apostles rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. This point deserves a little time to consider how can this be? How can they rejoice after having been imprisoned and beaten? Well, I think what we need is we need a Christian theology of suffering. D.A. Carson, I think, is very helpful in this. Uh, He lays out six aspects of suffering for the gospel's sake. So I'm going to read those for you guys. Suffering repurposes the world that is filled with evil. And God's enemies, recognizing God's enemies have been seeking to silence and destroy God's word and his people since the beginning. It's through that suffering that he actually repurposes it and actually makes it work for good. You think about that passage in Romans 8. He works out all things for good for those who love him. He has a particular purpose that he's working towards in the lives of his people to conform them into the image of his son. And that's what he's doing. Jesus himself connects his suffering with our suffering. 
foundationally when he connects his cross to the cross that we're to take up daily. In addition to that, this suffering connects us with genuine believers across the world and across the ages. Suffering for the gospel is a part of our Christian calling. Paul said, for it is uh, it has been granted to you on Christ's uh, it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. Now suffering is also tied to knowing Christ and experiencing the power of his resurrection. Christian suffering is tied to the dissemination of the gospel when suffering for the gospel for gospel proclamation we often experience the joy of Christ. We get something that we don't expect on the other side of that. The apostles were blessed to have the honor to be dishonored, the grace to be disgraced on behalf of Christ. We ought to have that same kind of posture in the way that we think about our lives in front of unbelievers. Now, the second wave of persecution has broken over the church. After the first, they responded in prayer for boldness to go on preaching, and after the second, they responded in praise for the privilege of being able to endure the dishonor for the sake of the name. Interestingly, even though they were beaten and threatened, it doesn't seem to slow them down. You see it in verse 42. Every day, again, in public and in private, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They continue to preach the gospel. The gospel continues to move forward. The word of God continues to spread, and they're teaching them in public and in private. Now, we've seen the apostles were imprisoned and opposed for obediently preaching Christ and how they rejoiced in the privilege of suffering for his name. The thing I want to call us to is to, to do the same, to obey God over men, to be more concerned with, the, with what God desires and thinks than what men desire and think by preaching Christ and suffering joyfully for his name. When we go back to our neighbors, let's obey God and preach Christ. When we go back to our workplace on Monday, let's obey God and preach Christ. When we find ourselves back in the classroom, let's obey God and preach Christ to our classmates. When we gather with an unbelieving family, let's obey God over men and preach Christ. When we do, here's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3. We get the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For his sake we suffer the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that we may gain Christ and be found in him, that we may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. As we do suffer rejection, dishonor, disgrace, and beatings for the name of Christ, let's remember this reality. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he is the one who endured our stripes so that we might be healed. He's the one that was beaten. He's the one that was hung on a tree that we might have forgiveness of sins. Let's count it joy, brothers and sisters when we get to experience just a little bit of dishonor for the sake of the name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that we have in the apostles. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, 
for the way that you have loved us and cared for us in shedding your own blood for our souls. Father, thank you for the people that you put in our lives. Thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to proclaim the gospel to them without having to face prison or beatings, without having to, th- to face persecution from a, a group of religious elite or from a government. Thank you that we have the privilege and the opportunity to speak. Father, even as they prayed in chapter 4, give us boldness that we might proclaim the good news of the gospel. And Father, help us to count it as joy when we have the privilege of being dishonored for the sake of the name. We need your help in this. We are insufficient for these things. So we ask for it and know that you are well able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.